0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1474. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy The Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I... Teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education—history, economics, and more—the way it ought to be taught, with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I am so happy to be welcoming back Jared Casey, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy from University College Dublin, for the first time in a long time. We had him on a bunch of times in a row—well, pretty close together— because of his book, Freedom's Progress, with a question mark after it, a history of political thought. It's an enormous book, a great book, so important, so well done. It needs to be widely known and, of course, widely read throughout the libertarian world, of course, throughout the world in general. But really to inform our own people about the truth of the history of political thought, to really, really get in the weeds into the, the thinking of so many important figures who are in our tradition or outside our tradition. So we've covered so many different topics. I mean, we've gone as far back as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in this volume, in our discussions on this program. But today, we thought we would fast forward all the way to the 20th century and talk about fascism, which we've done on the show before. But, you know, Professor Casey always has something interesting to say about pretty much everything. So I wanted to um, pursue that conversation with him right now. So, Professor Casey, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Well, I'm very glad to have you back. It's been a long time. We've discussed quite a few topics in Freedom's Progress, but it's such a huge book. It's more or less inexhaustible. So you and I thought we might talk about fascism today, because you do devote some time to that as a political idea. And it's particularly important to get this one right, because a lot of people just use the word fascism somewhat carelessly as a generic term of abuse. But it does, in fact, have a precise meaning. So, in order for us to dive into this discussion, we should start with some kind of working definition or understanding of what fascism really is and
1: was. Yeah, very good, Tom. Uh, it's great to be back. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, well, fascism, I suppose, in its narrowest signification, uh, picks out the political movement spearheaded by Mussolini in Italy between whatever it was, nineteen twenty-two, I think, and then obviously the uh, the collapse of that regime uh, in 1943. It has a a broader signification and people often use the term fascist to describe national socialism, uh, which is, in fact, different in some ways. So the question then is, are there sort of generic characteristics that a regime could have which would allow it to be correctly described? As fascist. And I I think there is obviously a scholarly discussion on this, and some people take one position, some the other. But my view is that, uh, yes, fascism, if you like, describes a type of regime uh, which is characterized by a number of factors. So let's see what they would be. Collectivism. I'm going to talk about that as tribalism, a a kind of ultra nationalism, especially in the form of the rebirth of the nation. Authoritarianism, totalitarianism corporatism, and obviously a heavy emphasis on the military, and perhaps above all, what's known in, in in Nazism as the Führerprinzip, which is the leadership principle, which of course requires a great leader in the case of those two movements, Hitler and Mussolini.
0: I also think of fascism in broad terms as conceiving of the state as the embodiment of the people's will, and or maybe the leader, the Fuhrer principe, is the idea that the leader really embodies the people's will, and the state is the instrument through which that people realizes its destiny in history,
1: yes, I mean, that 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 is true. I mean, again, you know fascism is one of these uh, essentially contested terms, and scholars have a wonderful time writing back and forth and disagreeing with one another on it. but i, I think I think it's true to say what you've just said. I think that's absolutely correct.
0: There's a passage in Mises' book, Liberalism in which he says something along the lines of, the other side has its flags and its national songs and its captivating slogans, whereas we liberals, meaning liberals in the classical sense, of course, have none of that. Well, what we have is reason, and we are unfurling the banner of reason and urging mankind to rally to it. And that could not be farther removed from fascism, which you describe as a form of irrationalism that, that looks at what somebody like Amesis is saying, and just thinks it's so. These are just disembodied principles. There's no flesh and blood to them. There's no life in any of them. It's just what a, what it's abstractions that a philosopher would write on a chalkboard. Whereas we are appealing to the experiences and the 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 common history and indeed the common blood of our people.
1: Yeah, I mean that's very true. It's it, <laughs> it will be hard even if our parliamentary systems were better than they are, which they're not, to get wildly excited about it. Uh, I know those people who are professionally involved in politics, for them, it's their life's blood. But for most human beings with their lives to live elsewhere, uh, it's a matter of mostly indifference and painful sort of suffering. Whereas the, the appeal of fascism was that it, it appealed to the sort of flesh and blood, to the concrete, to the instinctive or the unconscious. And it prioritised that insofar as there's a philosophy of fascism, that's what it was, and it rejected what it what it saw as a kind of effete rationalism, a concern with sort of logic chopping and moving things around. Uh, blood, blood and soil in the Nazi version was the same sort of thing, slightly less dramatic in the in the Italian version, but yes, that characterises it. So something to get worked up about, something to to get excited, something that could appeal, and I mean, who hasn't? seen, for example, um, those those newsreel photographs uh, of, or it's not photographs, but newsreels, uh, footage of uh, Hitler, you know, standing up there declaiming and uh, assuming that the collective audience wasn't simply putting it on. They were being genuinely moved by what he had to say. Whether they were right to be so moved is another question, but they were genuinely moved. Uh, And that's something uh, which, I mean, the thing has to be granted to fascism. It did appeal to something in people.
0: It's not difficult to understand why you would use the word tribalism, therefore, in this context, but you also use the word transcendence. What are you driving at there?
1: Well, I don't mean anything very fancy by transcendence, because transcendence is an experience we all have in a very humdrum way. So people who follow sports For example, uh, get attached to their team and even though their team doesn't know that they exist (laughs) and would happily carry on without them, nonetheless, they say things like, "Uh, we won today. And who's this we? I mean, how did you get you part of the team? No, but in a sense, uh, you identify with it and its victories are your victories, its losses are your losses. And it takes you out of yourself, gives you something greater than your own humdrum life, uh, to experience. Same would be true, for example, on a higher plane, a slightly higher plane, for example, in music, when you go to a concert and you experience, say, you know, a first-class symphony orchestra playing, say, ooh, uh, let's say Sibelius is simply number five, and, you know, an outstanding performance, and you're part of this great crowd, and you share this experience. And for a short time, you're, you're, you are, as it were, taken out of yourself. And so similarly, in a political way of uh, the the fascist movement provided a kind of transcendence. It gave people whose lives were maybe miserable and who didn't have a lot something beyond themselves and their own petty interests to live for, something to identify with, especially in its successes, but even in its failures. Let me
0: just ask you uh, questions a little bit off the topic here, but you also use the word tribalism in reference to a, a contemporary phenomenon, namely Bolshevism, and there— It's not as obvious how it applies because obviously the fascists are appealing to particular people, whereas the Bolsheviks no doubt think of themselves as universalists. So how are they also tribalists?
1: No, that's true. There are differences, uh, and even though I describe them all as forms of tribalism, there it doesn't preclude there being differences between them. The the Bolsheviks did uh, uh, portray themselves as being internationalist, though in fact their activities were confined largely to specific national groups. And in effect, I mean, for example, the major form of Bolshevism, uh, which is that in the Soviet Union, was simply a form of uh, Russian imperialism uh, of the old style. Um, nonetheless, they 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 each had, as it were, a tribe. Whether it was the folk, the people in say in Nazism, or the nation in it in uh, Italian fascism. So the proletariat, the class, plays the role of the local uh, of the, if you like, of the anointed group uh, the local group, as it were, which makes it the tribe. And and to be part of that proletariat, uh, for whom heaven awaited at some future. Uh, if very far off date, uh, was to be part of that tribe. And so people sacrificed, genuinely did. I mean, many people were were committed uh, to this and and endured horrible sufferings and hardships for what they thought was the, uh, the attainment of a greater goal. Uh, they were to be disappointed, of course, but nonetheless, they genuinely did believe that that's what they were working towards.
0: I want to turn now to how the fascists conceive of freedom, because they would reject the idea that they reject freedom. It's just a matter of how they conceive of freedom. But first, I have a quick message for the folks. All right, folks, I'm about to pull you out of your comfort zone a little bit, but maybe your comfort zone has become a prison. You may hear the word meditation, and you think, ah, oh, that's kind of woo-woo, or maybe that works for other people, but it wouldn't work for me. Well, why don't you try it? You don't have to sit in a lotus position with your eyes closed in a silent room. You don't need to devote half an hour to it. You can do five-minute meditations with Simple Habit, a fantastic meditation app. And this is not just abstract. These are meditations to help you with specific problems in your life. So maybe you're running into parenting issues or you're nervous about something going on at work or whatever. These are eminently practical meditations that can be done by busy people. And if it doesn't do anything for you, then say, Woods, you're a bum. This was not a good use of my time. I highly doubt that's what you're going to say. You're going to say, Woods, I am shocked at the difference in my quality of life just by doing this. Simple Habit has hundreds of meditations for free and thousands with the premium membership. Well, my listeners can take 30% off that premium membership when they go to simplehabit.com woods. Get 30% off a premium subscription to Simple Habit when you go to simplehabit.com woods. So how do the fascists conceive of freedom? What does it mean to be free for a fascist?
1: Well, again, you might think or one might think unreflectively that freedom means having the ability to do as you wish without other people imposing their wills on you to prevent you from doing it. But that, from the fascist point of view, is a sort of vulgar liberal conception of freedom, freedom as a sort of mere instinct or caprice. Whereas real freedom, as far as they're concerned, is activity in conformity. In conformity with law. And of course, law is then determined by the guardians of the state, who are, of course, the leaders of the fascist party. Um, there is dist- I mean, uh, re- readers who are politically savvy will, of course, recognize in this a distinctly Rousseauian theme. In other words, the idea is that there can be a gap between your an agent's merely apparent will and what is determined to be his real will. So from the fascist point of view, sort of taking up the Rousseauian theme, uh, you might think that in order to be free, you should be able to do as you like. But they will say to you, no, 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 your real freedom consists in following the laws and the norms that are set down by the leaders of the fascist state. And because we know, of course, what's good for you and what's truly fulfilling for you, whereas you, unilluminated as you are, might think that what you're seeking will in fact be, be truly perfective of, of you, but in fact it isn't. So we have to, as it were, look out for you like sort of ersatz parents. Maybe that flows into
0: the issue of totalitarianism. What precisely is it about fascism that makes it totalitarian? I mean not all nationalism is fascist, for example. But maybe we could ask that question. How do we distinguish? Like, at what point does it become something other than – qualitatively other than just plain old nationalism?
1: Yeah, well, nationalism, I mean, runs a gamut from, I suppose, the most benign form of it, which is, a, I suppose, a sort of mild preference for people from your own part of the world who speak more or less like you and and understand the peculiar forms of sport that that you engage in and that sort of thing. Okay, people you feel at home. So, for example, if you're in a foreign airport and you hear people speaking – with a similar accent to you, it sort of makes you feel at home in that sense. So nationalism in that sense, sharing, you know, a sort of a mild set of of not particularly important characteristics. But then nationalism, uh, you know, takes up different forms. So, of course, nationalism combined with the state, as we saw it in the 19th century, is a sort of potent mixture. But even that has limitations. What makes totalitarianism to be really problematic is that here, the state or the folk or the proletariat or whoever the the locus of virtue is, um, is taken to be the organizing principle around which everything has to be organized. That's the whole point, it's total. So that all all events, everything, activity, sports, education, uh, the economy, industry, management of industry, all have to be controlled by the state. Everything for the state, nothing against the state. In the sort of in the Mussolinian uh, dictat. That's what makes it to be totalitarian.
0: All right. Now I want to raise the uh, interesting, probably fruitless question about whether fascism is properly considered a phenomenon of the left or the right. And I've gone back and forth on this over the years. I know, and as as you certainly do that uh, Eric von Kuhnelt-Ledeen, who ext- was an extremely learned scholar, took the position that it was a phenomenon of the left. And in fact, he had a book called uh, Leftism, and it was later updated as Leftism Revisited, From Hitler to Pol Pot. And of course, so right there in the title, he's telling you Hitler's on the left. <laughs> it just, just meant to rub it, in, rub your nose in it. Uh, but on the other hand, I've had people say, like Paul Gottfried, say to me, no, no, look, it obviously is a phenomenon of the right because – there are certain leftist ideas that it does not hold. Like it doesn't hold egalitarianism, for example. Uh, it, it certainly does not believe all people are equal or anything like that. So how do you sort through this? I th- I, I don't, I said it was fruitless, but I mean, it. I just mean that it's, it's a kind of a debating society question. That doesn't make it uninteresting. I find it intensely interesting.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, I'm, I'm reluctant as I am to disagree with Paul Godfrey. I'd have to say that uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, fascism is a creature of the left. Um, I don't want to get, if you like, into a discussion of etymology here or anything like that, but I mean, let's let's look at where it comes from. So, for example, Mussolini is a socialist, was a socialist before he became a fascist, uh, edited a socialist paper. And the, the word socialism is, in fact, part of the word Nazi. One of the, one of the problems with using Nazi is that, of course, it elides the socialist develops as a national socialist party, and the difference between Nazism, or National Socialism, and and Bolshevism is that the 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 Bolshevists thought that they were, if you like, socialists of an international variety, whereas uh, the 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 Nazis were, if you like, um, had limited their socialism to the 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 nation state. But uh, while you know, uh, those who are happy to fling those names around, as terms of abuse for people on the on the sort of right of the scale or conservatives generally, tend to forget that in fact the word socialism is is part of the word Nazi. Now you might say, well, okay, that's purely verbal, but I- is there anything more to it than that? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, if you look at the at what Mussolini set out uh, as their program in the Fasci di Combattimento. So he had, for example, an eight-hour working day, minimum wage, worker participation, the management of industry to be given over to proletarian organizations, the provision of state secular education, progressive tax, and the confiscation of ecclesiastical property and revenues. Now, that sounds all very left-wing to me, okay? And then when you switch over uh, to Germany, you find that their program, at least the original program, though it was modified later on, was uh, concerned with the, the abolition of all so-called unearned income, confiscation of war profits, the nationalization of corporations, profit sharing in industrial enterprises, uh, the, the reconstruction of the national system of education uh, so that the curricula of them is brought into line with practical life, creation of a national press, prohibition and prosecution of newspapers whose output not conducive to the national welfare, and so on and so forth. All of that seems to me, uh, and I'd be happy to hear arguments on the other side, but all of that seems to me to be pretty solidly uh, socialist and left. Uh, There are those people, for example, Frank McDonough, who in his book on Hitler and Nazi Germany, described these as being limited and puts inverted commas around the socialist. But I have to say that in order to do this, you have to have a really strange and bizarre hermeneutical ability to deny what seems to me to be the obvious uh, socialist thrust of those demands. All right.
0: That's a pretty good case. I'll grant you that is a more than reasonable case. Now, let's try to bring this up to the present day because people will say that in Eastern Europe and in some political parties in Western Europe, there's a resurgence of fascism. Would, is that how you would describe what's happening in Europe? Is it, is it a resurgence of fascism?
1: It's difficult to say. Uh, I'm not trying to dodge the question, but what we, from the limited amount of information I've got, it looks on the face of it to be more or less a recrudescence of your sort of 19th century nationalism rather than fascism. Uh, in other words, where, the, where we are where not necessarily committed to the idea, which seems to be a key idea. Of uh, of uh, fascism, which is the idea of the rebirth of the nation, but rather an attempt simply to to fight against the increasing internationalization of, for example, the European Union. It may be, it may be that it has fascistic elements, and it may be that it will move more clearly in that direction as time goes on. It's really hard to say, but at the moment, if I had to put money in it, I would simply I would simply plump for nationalism rather than fascism.
0: All right, so having said that, uh, let's go back a little bit. You have in the chapter in your book a little bit of treatment of the subject of fascism in the United States. Now, it's interesting to note as we look back on, let's say, the 1920s and maybe even 1930s in the U.S., that there is some favorable – well, more than just some favorable treatment in the press of the example of fascist Italy. Uh, the New Republic magazine, for example, which is still around today, seems to have been quite fond of the Italian fascist example because they <laughs> liked the idea of – that Mussolini had and the fascists had that we can take – this was exactly what the progressives in the US said in World War I, um, That They looked at World War I. They looked at this great undertaking where we took the resources of society, and instead of thinking of our own selfish private interests – we devoted them to some common enterprise. So if we can do that during wartime, then surely we can all band together for something important, uh, You know, namely the resurrection of the nation itself, and, and keep that spirit of all of us working together, the public good over the private benefit. And that was what the fascists were talking about. And obviously that resonated with some folks in the US. So what do you have to say on that general subject?
1: No, I think that's I think that's exactly true. In fact, it brings us back to something we talked about a bit earlier, namely the notion of transcendence. And anyone who's ever served in the military will know that the especially if you've come from a background, for example, where your family wasn't particularly strong or supportive and so on, you, you without getting all romantic about it, you can you can find yourself, as it were, with a band of brothers where you're committed to engaging in activities, if you like, where you think. Uh, the the purely selfish part of yourself and and uh, and act if you like for the good of the group and we all recognize that that in fact has its place uh, in life okay we 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 in fact we do it voluntarily uh, we join associations and so on and when we we uh, sometimes give up our time and indeed our resources uh, to advance the good of the particular group What came about, I mean, the the, the real Philip, apart from the 19th century development of the philosophy of irrationalism, what really gave the push to the development of fascism in the 20th century was, of course, the First World War. And here, for the first time ever, really, the the total resources of the nation were developed, uh, were appropriated, if you like, for the purposes of war. Again, it's true, of course that, that every war the, the, the will involves the destruction uh, and the, or the rerouting of resources that would have been used productively elsewhere for destructive purposes. But it was for the first time, for example, that in, in Britain uh, that for example, that conscription was introduced so that whether you, so you didn't simply depend on people volunteering uh, to serve, but in fact they were forced by law to do it. And of course you had the same thing uh, in the United States. And what a lot of people took from this was, look, when when a war is on, everybody has, as it were, to pull together and nobody is permitted to dissent or, you know, go off in his own particular track or do his own particular thing. Everything must be devoted to the achievement of victory in the war. And there's something, as it were, stimulating and attractive about that. The problem is that it requires effectively the militarization of society as a whole, and indeed its continuing militarization. And therefore, it's not for nothing that, like, again, to, to move back from the United States to the European model, you know, when you saw Mussolini and Hitler, you almost invariably saw them in military uniform, right? This is the idea. They were the, if you like, the leaders. Uh, the war leaders, and in, when a when war is on, if you like, everything has to give way to it. The expression is there's a war on, you know, whenever you were and whenever you were given, whenever you were, as it were, attempted to complain about shortages or rations and so on, you were told there's a war on. And that that happened in the United States in the First World War, despite Wilson's election on a, on a non-involvement pledge and so on. Nonetheless, the, the US eventually in 1917 uh, was, uh, you know, began to participate. And as a result of that, uh, certain changes, certain really dramatic changes took place in U.S. society, for example, uh, and for the first time, in fact, and this is the interesting thing, long before Mussolini and long before Hitler. So you had the setting up of the first propaganda ministry. You had the jailing of political prisoners. You had the stigmatization of foreigners and immigrants. You had the shutting down of newspapers. You had the recruitment of paramilitary forces to intimidate others. And you had the recruitment of the the entertainment industry to provide propaganda. All of that took place in the United States in 1917.
0: Why do you think it matters to talk about fascism today, is it just of historical significance to aid in our understanding? Or is there anything we can learn from it or any continuing relevance?
1: Well, no, I I think it's important because uh, I think in my chapter I point out that they haven't gone away, you know. In other words, um, fascism can occur even without the name. In other words, so there's always a temptation uh, in our societies. As a result, perhaps, of impatience with democratic or pseudo-democratic processes, and the inevitable wrangling that goes on in political circus, when people want to get things done, they want a strong leader. And I was shocked, uh, in fact, to to read recently in the in the United in the UK's papers that uh, there that the many young people, if you like, are receptive to the idea of quote-unquote strong leadership. And I need, to anyone, <laughs> to anyone with any histori- historical knowledge, that kind of language should be very alarming, right? Um, it, it's, the, it's and it's of course the language that that Roosevelt was to use uh, in the 1930s again, uh, in 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 words which were expressly militaristic, and indeed as it were threatened to. Uh, take on the role, if, in other words, if, if Congress wouldn't, as it were, step up to the plate and do the job, then he was prepared. Indeed, he saw himself as duty bound to lead the people in that way. And that what, what we talked about earlier is the Führerprinzip, the idea that, the, you know, the the leadership principle is strong. Uh, that's always there, sometimes under the surface. And sometimes I would think perhaps uh, more recently, uh, you know, at the surface or just popping above the surface yet again. So it's a permanent temptation that has to be fought against and resisted
0: so the book we've been talking about today is freedom's progress a history of political thought which i highly recommend it's just a magisterial book it's an amazing achievement but i want to say a word about a book you have coming up in the not too distant future for which i will have you on as a return guest but maybe you can say something about it
1: yes so um the book you uh, you very kindly referred to as Magisterial was never intended to be the sort of brick <laughs> that it is. Um, somebody who read it jokingly said he was going to sue me for repetitive strain injury to his wrist. <laughs> but um, so I for a long time, I since I since I published that book in 2017, I've been doing some research and I've been concerned, as indeed many people have, by the attack on free speech and indeed the attack on procedural justice. Uh, for example, as exemplified in the Me Too movement. More about that later. So um, I started to write a book uh, on free speech. And then I thought, well, how, how, do, how would I organize this? I mean, uh, it's a complicated topic. And I thought, well, why not use the sort of st- the central principle of libertarianism, the zero aggression principle, and give an account of free speech and how it would be understood if you use that. And so that's what I've done. But then I thought, hang on a second. There's another element that's exceptionally worrying in in our current environment, and that's the idea uh, that there's, if you like, a, a certain intolerance, uh, of which the attack on free speech is simply a version. And so, as I started to think about this, I started to see that the doctrines, uh, the currently fashionable doctrines of diversity, inclusion, and equality, uh, are closely linked. If you like, to the same ideas that tend to limit speech. So my book tries to tie all of that together uh, in a coherent way.
0: Well, I'm very much looking forward to that. Of course, I look forward to anything that you have to say. So we will definitely revisit that. In the meantime, at tomwoods.com slash 1474, I'll have a link to Freedom's Progress, which everybody should own. It is an enormous book, but... So, I mean, it's like if you look at the price, remember, you're getting at least the equivalent of four books in here. And it's written from a libertarian perspective, very engagingly, with just so much knowledge and learning in it. There's no way you're going to regret that purchase. So, tomwoods.com slash 1474. Thanks so much, Professor Casey. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Okay, folks, remember, you've got to download my ebook, AOC is Wrong. It's so good. There's so much good stuff in there, so many great arguments. Like you think to yourself, Woods, I already have a lot of good arguments, you know, I don't really need this. But I'm telling you, I've got a lot of them myself, okay? I got a whole bunch of them here, and I don't want them to be collecting dust out there in the ether. I want you to be using them, learning from them and using them in your interactions with others. So the URL is aociswrong.com. Can you believe that? aociswrong.com. I'll tell you, I don't know if you know the story about this, but when I bought the domain AOCiswrong.com, they weren't even calling her AOC yet. That happened later. I bought AOCiswrong.com because I couldn't do Corteziswrong.com because that's not her name. And Ocasio-Cortez runs into the risk of misspellings or it's too many letters. Somebody's going to have a typo. You want to avoid that. So I thought, well, I guess I'll have to say AOCiswrong.com. And then she starts calling herself AOC and people are calling her AOC. So I look like a genius but i'm telling you i'm only just kind of smart okay so this you know it was smart to get a domain name sort of like this but it would have taken a genius to have predicted that aoc would be exactly the letters i would want so the fact is aoc is wrong.com that must be prime internet real estate i mean i i could fetch some dollars for that but i am using it to give you a free ebook it's free and it's substantive it's not like one of these free ebooks it's 14 pages with 38 point arial font or whatever. It is an actual ebook packed with information and arguments you probably have not heard. So check it out at aociswrong.com. Plus imagine the satisfaction you're going to get typing those keys on your keyboard. aociswrong.com. Wow, that's going to be fun. So go do that right now. Go to like if you're in your car I want you to pull over to the side. Go over to your smartphone aociswrong.com. Get yourself a copy of that ebook and I'll see you tomorrow.